0: All right, now let's take our Bibles this morning and open them once again to the book of Jude. We are returning once again to our study of this small little book, but like a small amount of dynamite, it packs a big punch. Uh, we have been uh, struck by all that Jude has told us thus far over the last several weeks, as we have been looking into the identity of the false, the identity of the false. We have been talking about truth, that truth really matters. Now, just at the outset, I want to take just a moment and clear up for us what may be confusing when we speak about the identity of the false, at least in the context of Jude's epistle, Because those words can be confusing for some because it sounds as if at times like we are speaking of someone who may just be confused in reference to Christianity or someone who professes Christ and maybe doesn't actually have all of the understanding and therefore at times they appear possibly as if they even don't know Christ. In other words, someone who is possibly confused about the gospel in one sense. They profess to believe in Jesus and have a relationship with God in some way, but they're not maybe fully understanding and maybe they're not genuinely saved. They're false believers. Sometimes that's like those in John chapter two, when they said they believed in Jesus, By what Jesus was teaching, they had an intellectually held understanding of some of the facts about Jesus Christ, but they never repented of their sin, never truly knew Jesus Christ, were following him in some kind of way, at least externally, but believed in somehow that they earned their salvation rather than it being a product of God given faith that God produces in them the fruit of salvation and godly living. Right, So when we say identity of the false, some might think that's who we're talking about, but that is not necessarily who Jude is talking about. While it's true that Jude, uh, all of those characteristics are true and fit the category for the unbelievers that Jude is talking about, but these are more deliberate in their unbelief. Jude is talking about those who are more deliberate in their rebellion. They are willful rejectors of Christ. Willful rejectors of Christ. These are wolves who have convinced themselves that they are sheep. Deliberate, though, in their own arrogance at denying the realities of who Jesus Christ is. And they are people of influence, people who desire to influence others, to be following them. They boast in their own knowledge of truth when in fact they are ignorant of truth altogether. In fact, Jude says that they are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Remember that in verse 4. These are ungodly persons. In fact, you'll notice in verse 15, he says, He sums up the reality of their condition, really, by saying that God is going to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's who we're talking about. Ungodly, 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 ungodly. We're talking about those who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ in some way with some kind of influence on others, and yet who redefine grace. They redefine grace and the under other great doctrines of Scripture that God has given us in His Word. And they create through redefining and through readjusting and modifying, they create a hybrid doctrine that will allow their own sinful lust to go unchecked even though they claim to know Christ. In fact, Jude 4 says that these are people who actually deny our Master and Lord. They deny Him. They do not know Him. They deny His mastery over them. They deny His Him being Lord over them. And that's why we've been referring to them as apostates. These are apostates. Those who know the truth of the gospel but deny it what it means, what that outworking of the gospel would be in their very life, a life of purity, a life of godliness. These are those who deny that reality in their life because they deny Jesus Christ. And so I don't want us to be confused as to who Jude is dealing with. Jude is talking about the apostates. And in verses 8 through 13, he has been giving us a description of their identity. And he's been doing that through identifying how they live and how they think. You remember verses eight and nine, we saw that they are arrogant in their own imaginations. That was the first identifier that Jude gave to us. They're arrogant in their own imaginations. In other words, they define Christianity and how a Christian is to be and how a Christian is to live. They define it by their own mindless thoughts. Their own uh, dreamed up, if you will, ideas and definitions that they say they received from some kind of dream or some other made up source. God spoke to me. Those are dangerous words in the Christian realm. You hear teachers out there today, teachers on TV and teachers in books say, I I heard this from God. And then they go on to say whatever it is they heard from God. And oftentimes, if not all the time, it's contradictory to what the word of God says. Which would simply imply that God is contradictive. That God does change when the Bible says he doesn't. So they are arrogant in their own imaginations. Secondly, in verse 10, we saw that they're arrogant, even in their own ignorance, ignorant, arrogant in their own ignorance. You remember what Jude said, these men revile things which they do not understand. That's ignorant to the very things that they say they know about. And yet they are arrogant about that. Their very actions show that they are ignorant Of the very truth that they arrogantly claim to have. Why? Because they do things that are contrary to what they say they know about. They revile angelic beings. They revile angelic beings. They're acting just like animals act, they're acting out of instinct. They're acting not out of reason, not out of understanding, not out of knowing what is true, even though they proclaim what is true. They're acting like animals just out of instinct. They rebuke angelic beings, which the Christian is never commanded to do. We saw that last time in Ephesians chapter 6. We are never commanded to rebuke the devil, we are commanded to stand firm, stand firm in the truth. We're never commanded to rebuke the demons or Satan himself. But those who are arrogant in their own ignorance would do that, and they would do that which the holy angels would never do. And so Jude goes on to say the third Characteristic of their identity is their arrogance and their determination. Verse eleven: Woe to them! He begins with that that pronouncement of judgment upon them. Just like Jesus pronounced in the Gospels: Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. <clears throat> it was a graphic description as we looked at that. If, Last week, as Jude describes these apostates and compares them to three people of the Old Testament who were known through the annals of Scripture and throughout history, because you see their names brought up over and over and over again, is examples of rebellious men. That's who Jude uses as an example for those whom he's talking about, the apostates, the ungodly. They are rebellious people. In other words, they are determined and by their determination to be what they ought not to be. And so they sin in order to get it. Cain sinned because he wanted to worship God the way he wanted to worship God, not according to God's design as his brother did. So he killed his own brother. Balaam, of course, led Israel into sin, even though he was, quote unquote, a prophet of God and spoke on behalf of God. He chose to serve himself and chose to serve his own sin. And for greed, he led Israel into sin because of it. And of course, we saw it cost him his very life, along with 23,000 others. And then, of course, Korah wanted to be equal on leadership grounds with Moses and Aaron, who God had appointed to be leaders in the nation of Israel and to lead them where God wanted them led. And Korah led others in that same rebellion, which not only cost him his life and the other families that were with him, but also cost the lives of more than 250 others who had kind of followed in that direction. God was serious about his holiness And all of that happened because the heart is deceitful above all things, as Jeremiah 17.9 says. The heart is deceitful above everything. Its desire is to rule itself. That's what the heart of man without Christ desires. It will not willfully submit itself to the truth. In fact, it cannot willfully submit itself to the truth without it being changed by Christ. Left to itself, the heart of man will always follow after the lie. Why? Because it hates truth. Truth matters, and it matters because of who gave us the truth. Jude says, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Because of who gave us the faith delivered to the saints. We contend for the faith, we contend for the truth because of who God is, that's why. So truth matters because God is truth. Therefore to follow or proclaim anything that is contradictory to God in any kind of way is in that way either subtly or overtly and largely to deny God. If we redefine God in any aspect, if we redefine God in the smallest of ways, then we don't have the God of the Bible anymore. We have a God of our own making. We understand that, don't we? Unless we understand God as God has defined himself, then we are not worshiping the God of the Bible. And to deny who God is of the Bible is to not know God. And yet that is exactly what these men do. And so Jude is helping us. Jude is helping us at this time, in this day, in this year, to be alert to the character of those who are false so that we can be careful to fulfill the command that we have heard in verse 3 to contend for the faith. And so here we come to verses 12 and 13, where he gives us a fourth characteristic about the false. They are arrogant in their presence. They are arrogant in their presence. Notice what he says in verses 12 and 13. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit doubly dead and uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Jude gives us five descriptions. Five descriptions that tell us of the danger and uselessness of the apostate being in and among the true church. Let me say that again. This is a reminder to us, a caution to us, a picture for us, a description given to us of the danger and uselessness of apostates being in and among the true church. So here again, we see the effect That they can have on the church. They affect the church and its purity because they are impure in their own lives. They affect the church by way of dissensions that they bring and cause in the church because of their own denials of the truth. And they affect the church by leading and participating in divisions in the church which separate the body rather than unify the body, which all gifts are to be used for unifying. And all of it because of outright rebellion. And so here again in these verses, Jude is showing us what these people are like and what kind of potential ungodly influence they can have. And he uses five metaphors here listed for us from nature. Five metaphors given to us from nature, almost showing us through the use of these metaphors that, that these kinds of people are just fleshly. They're just of the flesh. They're just of the fallen World that we see through our very eyes. They are through and through earthly. They are through and through fleshly in every way. In other words, they have no spiritual drive at all. There's nothing driving them that comes from God. So notice the five metaphors. First, he says they are unseen reefs, unseen Reefs. Some of your Bible translations say they are spots, spots. New American Standard says they are hidden reefs in your love feast. I don't, I don't think spots is the best word to be used as a word for translating there because the original word means a ledge of rock. And that's what the original word means that's translated here as a hidden reef in a New American Standard, and some of your translations, spots. Now, I, I, I have a home and here live in New Hampshire, the Granite State. I look out in my backyard, which is currently a dirt pile, and oftentimes there are ledges of rock that show, that show through the dirt. there are spots in the yard where I can see the rock. And so in that sense, they are spots. But the intended meaning here is a rock that you cannot see. A rock that you cannot see. They are unseen reefs. Now that's a dangerous reality. That's a dangerous reality if you've ever been on a boat in, in the ocean or on the lake. To have an unseen rock is not something you want. If you are out boating and you desire to get back to shore because maybe there's a storm on the horizon, maybe the clouds are beginning to form, and you say, we need to get back in, you you don't want to run into an unseen rock on your trip back. If that happens, then there's a real danger that your boat might sink and you are endangering your life. Well, Jude says that's what these kind of people are like in the church. In fact, I would go even farther and say that's what these kind of people are like at any point in the avenue of your Christian life. They are a hidden reef. They are a rock that you want to stay away from. They are something that is unseen in the water. Cue the Jaws music. They are unseen. You don't see it. And when you come in contact with it, you certainly know you've come in contact with something that's going to hurt you. It's too late. You are already in trouble. Why? Because their influence upon your spiritual whole is devastating. Their influence upon what is to be something of integrity to hold you together and to keep you afloat is now severely damaged. And that's what Jude is saying. Jude is telling us that their danger is in the fact that they are hidden. They don't come in and go, hey, guys, listen, I'm the bad thing. They don't do that. They come in hidden, they're secret. They're unseen. They're an unseen force of destruction. This happens oftentimes with us, the unsuspecting go into a church or you listen to one of these kinds of people on the radio or see them on TV. You think that what you're hearing is truth. You think that maybe even what you're reading about is truth. Something that will lead you to safety, something that will get you to shore, something that will be a refuge for whatever it is that you want to be encouraged about. You think you will find out how to live godly. You'll think you'll find out how to carry out your Christian life in a appropriate and God-honoring way, and yet you get damaged by their influence. You begin to follow after them, and they lead you into sinful living. Notice that Jude says they are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear. It's not that they don't fear you. They don't care about you. They don't fear God. They don't care about what God desires. They don't care about what God wants. What Jude is talking about here when he says love feasts, he's talking about time of communion. In the ancient times, the time of communion wasn't simply this representation that we have today where we celebrate communion together with the elements of bread and blood. It was a feast. It was what you read about in the Gospels, the last supper of Jesus Christ, a Passover meal. It was a, a feast together in the full remembrance of how God had brought Israel out of Egypt. And all that they went through and the bitter herbs and all the pain and struggle and the sacrificial lamb and all of the symbology that went with that. They are hidden reefs without fear. Why? Because they care for themselves. They don't love. This is a love feast. This is a feast by which brings unity, as we've seen. This is why Paul included it in 1 Corinthians, a church being fractured by all kinds of dissensions, by all kinds of those who came in with all kinds of false words and those who wanted to follow the celebrity preacher of the day. I am of Paul and I am of Apollos. Paul says, no, communion is all about unity. It's about one another. It's about serving one another. It's about thinking of one another. That's why he says, don't bring your sacrifice without going first, making it right. You don't want to bring judgment upon yourself. You know what Paul's saying? He says, dine with fear. Fear God, but not these. They're hidden reefs in your love feast. They feast with you without Fear. They don't care about you. In other words, they eat without the slightest thought of service to anybody else. They come in, get all they can, take all they can. They're first in the line. They want it all. They don't care about you. They don't care about your real needs. They're just caring about what is about them. Well, that's what the apostate is like. A self-serving hidden reef self serving force of destruction that will only damage your life, watch out, Jude says, watch out, this is what they're like. You say, well, it's hard for me to to recognize this when it comes or when I hear it or when I say, it. listen, here's what Jude's saying. this is what they're like, know them, watch their life, see what they're doing it was Given testimony this morning, someone was giving me testimony about what they heard about the late Dr. Ravi Zacharias. Now, I don't know about Dr. Ravi Zacharias' spiritual life in the sense of whether he knew Jesus Christ or not. That can be debated. He's not with us anymore. God knows. And he's paying either the full price of his sinfulness and unknowing God, or he is with Christ in glory, and none of it really matters. But The fact of the matter is the damage he left at the end of his life was far worse than any help he ever gave to people in his life because of the sin that was exposed. But a couple of things that were kind of inherent hints to the potential of danger in his life was the fact that he was never an educated doctor in any kind of way, even though he called himself Dr. Ravi Zacharias. He had no doctorate in anything which ought to say something when you want to identify yourself with a title that isn't rightfully yours. But also, secondly, he never quoted Scripture when you talked to him personally. I don't know what all that says. All I know is it's curious. Jude is just simply saying, listen, you can look, you can see. Don't just buy it because it sounds good. Oh, the water's safe over here. Don't buy it. It might be a hidden reef. Better take a close look. And then Jude gives us a second metaphor. He says they are clouds without water. Clouds without water. We don't know much, don't think really much today about the concept of clouds other than the beauty in the sky, we see them. We see the white fluffy clouds and we go, oh, nice. Unless it's wintertime, then we go, oh, my goodness, the storm's on the way. But the reason we don't think like that is because we go to the grocery store to buy our food. Right? We go to the grocery store, food's there somehow, food got there overnight. It wasn't there yesterday, but it's there today. We don't necessarily live in an agrarian society. We don't go out, till the land, produce and plant the seed and get our own food. But that was not Israel in the past. Water was the most important resource needed. I've said over the years, 20 years ago or so, my wife and I went to Israel and our guide continued to tell us when we got off the boat, make sure you have your water bottle with you. Why? Because water is needed. It's not only hot, it's dry. And in order to grow anything, you need a lot of water. You can go about tilling the ground. You can go about putting the seeds in the ground. But without water, you get no harvest. You work so hard. You, You did all the work. You've done so much. The clouds are even in the sky. You see the white fluffy clouds, but no rain. Waterless clouds. I happened to be here at church on Friday night and I was talking with someone after church and we looked up in the sky and the clouds were moving pretty quickly as the the moon was shining on them and I just said, waterless clouds. It reminded me of this passage. Waterless clouds, they're, they're, they're no help. They're worthless for accomplishing what is needed in a time when growth must happen. Jude says that's what these men are like. You go to them for help, and yet they bring no help. They're like waterless clouds. They look good on the outside. They seem as if they're going to give you what you need, something of substance to give. They claim they have what you need and what to show, some kind of gifting for you and some kind of real puffed upness in their words. They say that. In fact, it looks really good. But they're just empty vessels. They're empty. I think about that every time my wife brings me home a bag of chips. I like chips. You go to the store, you buy a bag of chips, it appears to be really filled to the brim, doesn't it? I mean, it is packed. You open it with excitement, and you find out exactly what's in it half to a third. And it's not because they all broke. That's just what they do. And then, and then you begin to eat them. You're glad you're eating them. You're hoping they give you some kind of fulfillment in nutritional value. And yet you realize they're empty calories. You get nothing of value from them. You only find out it doesn't help. That's the apostate influencer. You think it's going to help? It shows, at least outwardly, so much promise, and yet it's only empty. Proverbs 25, verse 14 says this, Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. (laughs) Oh, I can do this for you. I can help you with this. Nothing happens. Worthless. That's what they're like. They boast of their gifting, boast of what they can do, boast that they can heal you, boast that they can come and do something for you, boast that you're going to get all kinds of things if you give them something. But they have nothing to offer, no help at all. They're waterless clouds carried along by the wind. And Jude gives us a third metaphor. Jude says they are fruitless trees. Fruitless trees. I mean, it's almost as if everywhere Jude looked in nature, there was an illustration of a false teacher. An illustration of someone who was an apostate. An illustration of someone who looked good on the outside, but he wasn't good on the inside. And again, he gets us into this agrarian thinking. Some of you like gardening. You garden, you do well in gardening. And you know what Jude's implying here. You plant a fruit tree, You expect that at harvest time, you'll get fruit. You'll get some crop off the tree. And yet, when you go to the tree, you're disappointed. Why? No no fruit. You wanted fruit. It's the time of harvest for fruit. You're hoping for something that could could be a harvest for you so that you can prepare for life through the winter time because winter is no planting, no harvesting, no reaping. And you get nothing. All you get is that it's going to be a long, hard winter. Now, why did the tree not produce fruit? Well, in this case, it was because it was dead on the inside. That's what he means when he says doubly dead. It's twice dead, dead on the inside. It's not only not producing, which shows it to be dead on the outside, but it's dead on the outside because it's dead on the inside. It's doubly dead. That's what an apostate is. They're doubly dead. They're dead on the inside. So whatever appears to be good on the outside is just fabricated. It's dead on the outside too. All it needs to be is what Jude says, uprooted, taken away, thrown away, put in the fire. No help at all. They bear no fruit because they only look alive on the outside. They can't help you. They can't give you anything of substance. can't give you anything that's worthwhile and helpful because they have nothing to give. It's only a matter of time before it's all visible. It's only a matter of time before it all comes. You, You see the truth in the early spring and you go, okay, everything's good. It looks good. It's got leaves. And then you come to autumn in the harvest time. There's nothing there. You realize it was all a joke. That's what the apostate is in the church. They may appear to be alive for a time. But in time, they will show themselves to be who they are to be. They ought to be giving that which is helpful to others, and yet they produce nothing. Nothing helpful at all, only hurtful, because they're actually dead on the inside. And now, and now you know it. Now it's visible. So Jude says, they're hidden reefs, that's dangerous. They're clouds without water, that's no help at all. And they're trees that don't produce. They, they have no substance that will help you at all. All they need to be is uprooted. And if that isn't dangerous enough for you, if that isn't unhelpful enough for you, Jude gives a fourth metaphor. He says they are like rogue waves. Verse 13 wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Fortunately, the only time I've been in the sea with a large storm was in a very large ship, which didn't seem to be all that bad, but the sea was pretty bad. And it can be a frightening venture to be on a boat in the ocean when the storm is raging. And one of the things you first notice is that the stirring of the ocean produces sea foam. That's what it does. When it beats against itself, when the waves are going and churning all over the place, it just beats up sea foam. And the sea foam doesn't just stay on the surface of the water, the sea foam begins to start implanting itself on the shore. It starts to gather itself because of its agitation on the seashore, especially when the sea is rough. And what comes with the foam is all kinds of stuff that's left on the beach cast up from the ocean itself that was there from people like you and I. Trash and wood, rocks that come from the places that you hadn't seen. There's all kinds of nice shells on the shore after that. I've lived in Florida. I've seen what's left on the beach after a hurricane. Well, that's how these kind of people are. They're like the rough sea that kicks up all kinds of garbage. That's what they do. They, they just come in and beat up everything and beat up anything and everything of their own life and lives of others. And all it does is produce shame and that shame is left everywhere like garbage on the ground. That's why James says they turn the grace of God into licentiousness. They take the grace of God and they abuse it in such a way that they think they can live however they want because God is a gracious God. And that just goes about stirring up and and pounding their own life with all the rough garbage that's in there and it brings it all out so that all people can see. Left just strewn all over the place. Comes out. They do whatever a true Christian would and should be ashamed of. They do it. And they have no shame about it at all. Jude says that's what they're like. They're they're like the waves of the sea that just cast up this this shame like foam. It's so Part and parcel to who they are because of how they operate. It just spews up. All the trash is left for everybody to see. That's what they're like in the church. Carnage everywhere. And then Jude says, fifthly, they are like wandering stars. Wandering stars. They're not only wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, but they're wandering stars. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Jude's talking about falling stars. He's looking really at the heavens and, and remembering either or seeing a falling star, the celestial entities that God had placed there for the limited light at night, if you will, falling from heaven only to be consumed by the darkness. doing the very opposite of what they are meant to do. Stars were created to give light. That's what it's meant to do. It gives light. And so too, you and I, being created beings by God, were meant to shine the light of God forever, to glorify God forever. And yet here are some, while being created to glorify God, go the opposite way. They're like the fallen angels before them. They're like, in fact, every man before Christ. We're doing exactly what we're not commanded and not created to do. We're not glorifying God. God created us to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And the only way to do that is through Jesus Christ and having a relationship with God through salvation in Christ alone. And yet every man prior to that is like a falling star. We are those who are doing what we are not created to do. And so these men are like that. They go their own way and they have no lasting effect. There are no eternal good. They will be in black darkness forever. when you read the Bible, do you ever think like, like this when, when you're reading it and you read the words, for whom the black darkness has been reserved? Jude describes their eternal place as black darkness. Ever think about that? I mean, couldn't have he just said they were darkness, they're reserved for darkness forever. But he doesn't say that. He says black darkness. Now, remember, this is the Holy Spirit through Jude, inspired by the Spirit, to put down the exact words that we have. That's what it says. In other words, there is dark and then there is black dark. Some years ago, my wife and I and our kids visited the underground caves just outside Louisville, Kentucky. I can't even remember. Mammoth Caves, that's what they're called. You can go underground, it's like 65 feet underground or whatever, you go in there and walk through these caves that have these minerals and all kinds of things. And at one point, as you're walking through and they're leading you through, they stop in this big open area and they say, okay, everybody needs to stand still because we're going to turn the lights off. And they shut the artificial lights that they have put through the caves off. Let me tell you, beloved, that is dark. You can't even see your hand right here in front of your face. It is dark. It's black dark. It's black dark. That's the only darkness that I know that comes to my mind that I can equate with black darkness that Jude is describing here. It is black darkness. These people will be in black darkness forever, a place where God's presence, get this, a place where God's presence supernaturally is not. Think about that. God is omnipresent. And God is light. And yet here, there is a place, black darkness, that is a celestial or that is some kind of place reserved for those like these apostates. A place void of the presence of God. In some supernatural way, God can do that. Somehow he will restrict his presence. He will restrict his light, his sovereignly restricted presence from being there. It will be a place of pain, place of torment, a place of godlessness forever. So Jude is telling us this, and he's telling us this for one reason. He's saying, listen, you need to be vigilant. You need to be prepared. You need to be ready because they are arrogant in their imaginations. They are arrogant in their ignorance. They are arrogant in their determination and they are arrogant in their presence. They are dangerous. So dangerous that they are deceptive. They are selfish. They are fruitless. They are shameless, they are aimless, and they begin, they being around them is like being around death. That's what he's saying. Like being around death. And in the end, they will be condemned by God forever. I think that's a pretty serious warning, isn't it? I mean, that's just not the little sign that says, caution, floor's wet. Yeah, that's a helpful caution. But this is like, listen, if you go there, you will die. This is like the sign on the, on the electrical box that says high voltage, and it's got the guy being shocked, and he's like imploding. That's, that's what that's like. That's this one. This is like, if you touch this, you are touching high voltage electricity that will kill you. This is a serious warning. So how does God deal with all of this in the church? How does he do it? Well, the first way he deals with it by just this, by warning us, right? I mean, he gave us the book of Jude. This is a warning to us. We are warned to watch out. We are warned to contend for the truth, to contend for the faith, and we have been given ways in which we can identify this. Now, it doesn't mean we go around and we look under every rock to see if we can find some kind of false teacher and some kind of heretic around every every corner or that we point a finger at somebody because they might be caught in some trespass and say, you must be a false teacher. That's not what we're talking about. No, what we're talking about is simply this, just remain vigilant knowing that there's a very real danger of the apostate being in the church. Always stay vigilant. But secondly, secondly, God protects his church by each and every true Christian in the church building up the others in the church so that. Like Ephesians 4 says, we will all attain to a mature faith and we don't follow after the false. In other words, the other way God protects the church is with you and I protecting one another. And when we see something happening that might be heading in a direction where there is an influence of something that isn't biblical, something that isn't right, something that is dangerous, we warn, we caution, we help. It means when you and I are interacting with one another in the body and you hear of someone being influenced by what you know to be false. When you hear of someone that you know, some close friend of yours, someone in the church who's reading material by someone who says they hear from God, caution them. Or when you hear of someone who you know, someone you love, some body member of yours that are tuning into some foolishness on the radio or on the TV or something else, you warn them, you caution them. You help them because you need, they need to know they're being influenced by what you know to be false. And you seek to build them up in the faith with humility How's that going to happen? How's that going to happen except through you and I discipling one another, interacting with each other's lives, being involved with each other's lives. And as we interact with each other, we let each one of us exercise humility when we're warning and when we're warned. We exercise humility. We don't say, hey, how dare you tell me that? How dare you? My pride gets up. What are you talking about? What do you mean I'm, I, I'm, I'm, that, that person's not good? What, what do you mean by that? After all, I'm discerning enough. I can tell, yeah, I knew that was wrong, but I'm just going to take what's good here. We don't let our pride get up. We exercise humility. And we're, we're the one doing the warning. We exercise the humility, as Galatians 6.1 says, with humility, knowing we could be caught in the same trap. Knowing we could be, we're not smarter than somebody else just because we see that we could be caught in the same trap. We just want to help. Why? Because we all need each other. You know why? Because the enemy's against the church. Enemy hates the church. The enemy doesn't want to see the church prevail. The enemy wants to see the church back, backbiting, bickering, fighting, being disunified, uh, Fighting against one another over petty nonsensical issues. You know why? Because he never takes a day off. I've often said when it's quiet when it's quiet in the church, the enemy's just sitting back reloading his ammo ammo. He's just sitting down his foxhole watching the shells go over as we're firing. He's just reloading, waiting for the proper time. We face all kinds of attacks. You face all kinds of attacks, doctrinal attacks, moral attacks, attacks against your own Christianity, and the enemy would love for us to compromise. He would love for us to live by means of pragmatism. You know what pragmatism means, right? If the end justifies the means, then who cares about the means? God would love us to be thinking, or the enemy would love us to be thinking like that. But listen, God doesn't simply tell us what to do. God tells us how to do it. So we need to take caution. Take caution about what we let into our own lives and what we watch, what we read. Remember that it is God, it's His will that we be sanctified. How are we sanctified? Jesus said by the truth, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. That's how we're sanctified. Saturation in the word of God. That's what we watch, that's what we read. And knowing Jesus Christ, we are new creatures in Christ. The old passed away. Yeah, the vestiges of sin are there. The shadows of sin are there. Our flesh, oftentimes, we, we allow it to go that way, and we should not. We have the power to obey, and yet we sin at times. But we're new creatures in Christ. And so Jude is simply saying to us, look, let's take our Christian life seriously. Let's take it seriously, and let's take it as seriously as God does. Why? Because truth matters. Truth matters. Truth matters. Ungodly people in the church are dangerous for the church. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we have been challenged once again by Jude's description. Simple, yet profound description of the false, what they're like, how how they don't benefit. In fact, how they're dangerous. Dangerous not only for our own lives, but dangerous for the lives of others that we may know and be around. We know in our care for one another, we would never willingly decide to hurt someone else in our own family. And yet oftentimes we're uncareful because of our uncarefulness. We're following after things we should not follow and thinking that they will help us and and even encouraging maybe others to do the same because we're ignorant of the truth. Lord, shape us and mold us, cause us to be more attuned to your word, be in line with what your truth says. We know that you promised to sanctify us and that your word sanctifies us. So Lord, if we're to be holy and living as we are before you in Christ, then help us do that by submitting our lives to the truth. And as we look at what a Christian is in outward living, according to the truth, we will recognize the apostate, the influencer who just wants to damage. Lord, we thank you for loving us in this way and caring for us to tell us these things. Use it in our lives to not only protect us, but to protect others. And most importantly, to protect and care for your bride, the church. That one day we will be with you in purity and holiness, unaffected by anything of error. Not even the gates of hell on this side of heaven will prevail against the church. So we thank you for that promise. Use us now for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.